Up on the screen, I've got three portraits. And I wonder what you think might be the story of each one of those subjects for the portrait. I wonder what you think each artist is trying to say through their portrait. But it surprised you to know that the subject of the portraits is actually all the same person. See, what's happened is that the artist has shaped and formed their subject according to their viewpoint in just the way that they chose. And they have that right because it's their painting. It's their masterpiece. You might know that actually it's the same artist. Does anyone know the artist for each of these three? It's Picasso. Picasso is both the artist and the subject. Three pictures of Picasso. In our current series, Portrait of a Disciple, Jesus is the artist and he's making a masterpiece of our life. We're his disciples. We are the ones whose portrait he is painting. We're the ones who are being formed on his canvas. And so in order to participate in this real world of Jesus' disciple, we want to know, well, what's this all about? How am I supposed to do it? What do I do such that Jesus can truly make a masterpiece out of my life? Today, particularly, we're interested in the foundation of discipleship. What do we absolutely have to get right at the outset in order for Jesus to paint his masterpiece? For much of Jesus' early ministry, he was an itinerant preacher up in the north, teaching, preaching, moving around that sort of Sea of Galilee area. And as itinerant preachers do, it seems that Jesus repeated his core message over and over, using the same parables, using the same proverbs and illustrations over and again, perhaps to differing audiences, but so that the message would stick and it would be memorable and that it would stay strong. It would be like a firm foundation for all those who wanted to know what he was about. And that seems to explain why the teachings of Jesus that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 6, hopefully you've got that open in your Bible, why it seems that that is so similar to the Sermon on the Mount that we perhaps know a little better in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And yet Luke records these teachings of Jesus in a different setting. So if you do have your Bibles, and hopefully you're able to pick one up as you came in, because that's what you do these days, you pick it up on the way in when you get your name tag. Luke 6, verse 17. And you see there that a large crowd has come and gathered around Jesus and they want to hear him and they want to be healed of their diseases. Some of them have impure spirits in them. They are greatly troubled. They are desperate for something, for anything. And I want you to try and imagine the scene. It's a, it's a little bit like a crazy Saturday night in the emergency department at uh, Hornsby Hospital. There's all kinds of noise, all kinds of clamour, distractions everywhere, and Jesus stands up in the middle. 
verses 20 through 45, Jesus speaks now in this large flat plain a message about those who are the blessed ones in the kingdom. He speaks about the woes of the rich. He talks about loving your enemies, getting the log out of your own eye first before you take the speck out of somebody else's eye. And just like at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus finishes up with a sharp warning to actually do what he says. So have a look with me again at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's a rebuke. But before we get to that, do you notice the premise of Jesus' warning? Why do you call me Lord? This warning only applies to people who call Jesus Lord. The starting point of being Jesus' disciple, the assumption is that we will name him and live with him as our Lord. Now, you don't often hear people today being referred to as Lord, do you? I mean, you know, unless there's some guy in a castle in Scotland or you know, a member of the upper house of the British Parliament. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. You might remember last week when Mal spoke to us from Matthew 28 that we heard that the resurrected Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. Jesus is Lord because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It belongs to him. Supremely, he has the right to call the shots in the universe, in my life, and in your life as well. He rules over all the storms in our lives. He rules over all the storms in Sydney, all the storms across the earth. He rules across the storms on the surface of the planet Saturn and the solar storms on the sun and whatever other storms there are on other planets and solar systems that we don't even know about. Jesus is Lord means that he has the right to govern everything and everyone. Addressing Jesus as Lord cannot mean anything less than this. Being a Christian or becoming a Christian requires us to embrace the truth that Jesus is Lord. Being Jesus' disciple means he's calling the shots. And when he speaks, we listen and we follow. That's the basic condition of being a learner of Jesus, as well as the premise for this parable that now follows. So verse 47, Jesus gets to the beginning of the parable. He introduces it this way. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. And then you get the parable, right? In two parts, the good news part, here is the house that's built on the rock. They are like a man, verse 48, building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came... The torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. Then comes the bad news, right? The flip side of this housing foundation scenario, verse 49. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. You see, parables are meant to impact us. They are sharp, they are punchy, and they're memorable. The house collapsing 
in the face of the storm, it's a tragedy. Guess what? Storms and floods and fires, they do come sometimes. Some people have prepared their properties very, very well. And others, not so much. Hope you're in the former category today. The foundations of a house are critical. I got up early this morning and I looked at the foundations of the house I'm living in. It was kind of wet down there. Um, I am concerned that we have a lot of water, but I think we're going to be okay. But you want to know what your foundations are like, right? You only really find out about the quality of your foundations and the wisdom of your builder when the testing comes, right? when it starts to rain, when the winds blow and so forth. Every, when everything's fine... Who knows what your foundations are like? But eventually there is a reckoning. And the same is true for our lives. Jesus isn't specific here about if he's talking about you know, the trials and storms of life, when you get that bad medical diagnosis or your, your job is under threat or, or your finances are looking wobbly. It's not clear whether he's talking about the trials of life or whether he's talking about the final judgment when we will all stand before him and give an account of his life. And in a sense, I don't think it's really important because this parable is not about the particularities of different kinds of judgment. It's a good thing to remember that Jesus' parables mostly just have one punch. That's what a parable is. Okay? They're not allegories, they're parables. And we do, rem- we do very well to remember that the, the punch here, the big idea that Jesus is talking about, is verse 47. The parable of the house foundations is meant to show the tragedy of hearing Jesus' teaching and not putting it into practice. Or if you like the positive side of the coin, which I much prefer, the point of this parable is building our house on the rock means we do two things. We hear Jesus' words and we put them into practice. We can sometimes get kind of very distracted by the illustration. I know how wonderful and and interesting that is. No, we've got to remember this. Make sure we hear Jesus' words. Make sure we put them into action. That's what it's all about. House illustrations, helpful illustration only. At this point, what usually happens is that most of us check out. Oh man, it's that sermon again. I've just got to try harder to obey. Just try a lot harder. It's all about my willpower and how good I'm going to be. More hard work, more grind. But the problem is, is that self-discipline and steely willpower and flinty-eyed determination doesn't really work for long, does it? We fail and we feel guilty and then we give up. We don't necessarily give up being a Christian, we give up growing as a Christian. And we settle for wherever it is that we got to. We're stuck in mediocrity. And if that sounds at all like your experience as a Christian, I've got some good news. You're not alone, and there actually is a way through this. Many, many people through the history of the church have been down this path, and they've found this way through. In short, the key to growing as a Christian, the key to transformation, is in the hearing of God's word. We we try to move too quickly from to the doing bit before we've actually got the hearing bit sorted out. Really hearing God's word is what will actually bring change so that the doing becomes a whole different thing. 
And for the remainder of our time this afternoon, let's focus in on the hearing part. Let us learn to hear God's word well so that we are changed, so that the doing bit becomes a very different uh, activity altogether. We want to think about hearing, not just for information, but hearing for transformation, for that makes all the difference. And I think that was what the Apostle Paul was on about when he wrote to the Colossians. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The message of Christ finds a home in us, a a comfortable, spacious, dry, warm home where it can dwell richly as we teach and admonish one another. Do you notice how this is a communal activity? This is something that we all do together. We do this with each other and we do it for each other. We're supposed to speak God's word to one another. Sometimes it's going to teach us. Sometimes it'll challenge and correct us. It's not always going to be a comfortable thing. We will be admonished as we hear God's word from each other. And for this to happen, pretty obviously, we've got to be in relationship with each other. We've actually got to have a time when we gather, gather for church, gather in a small group, wherever it is that you, in your week, set a time aside to focus in on speaking God's word to each other, hearing from God's word. Just a very quick club plug here. If you're not in a small group, I really want you to be in a small group because this is going to be where it happens for you. So see me later, sign up, use the form. Back to the point. The message of Christ dwelling in us richly in our communal conversations with each other. How does Paul actually envisage that this is going to happen? Well, through the singing of psalms, hymns, and songs from the Holy Spirit. Now, I was thinking there's probably a couple of different ways, two ways at least that we could do this. What you could do, you could go around to your friend's place stand under their window late at night and sing songs to them about Jesus. That will encourage them to take up the second option, which is to come to church and sing together. What's the point of singing? Singing songs full of wisdom, inspired by the Spirit. Well, as we sing, we internalise God's Word. Singing Scripture gives it resonance. In our lives, it stays with us through the day as the tune does in your head. Any budding songwriters out there? If you're a budding songwriter, here's a tip. Steal all your lyrics from the Bible and find some good music to go with it. There's some old people in the building and they remember this thing called scripture in song. Great lyrics, lousy music. So, but it's amazing. I bet there are people in the building here who the scripture that they know best is the one that they've sung for years and years. So if you're a budding songwriter, take that little tip. Uh, There are so many things that happen for us and for each other as we sing God's word to each other. That's why uh, at St Andrews, I know that Santino and Mal spend a lot of time carefully looking at the words of the songs that we're singing to make sure that they're very helpful. Singing God's word changes us internally. 
as we do so, as we express it artistically. It encourages everyone else around us and appropriately we sing to God as we should with hearts full of praise. This is one way for the message of Christ to find a comfortable, rich home, to dwell in us richly in our lives. And that's how it begins to change us from within. You see, discipleship is not some kind of self-improvement program where, you know, with an iron will, you take remedial behavioural modification pills. It's all about embracing Jesus as Lord and growing as we hear his word, really hear it such that it dwells in our life richly. We hear God's word. We read from the Bible, not for information so much as transformation. That's one way. What are some other ways that we might be enriched in our hearing of God's word? I've got a few suggestions. The first one sounds a little bit Captain Obvious, but you'd be amazed how many people actually need to... Oh, yeah, that's right. You begin by reading the Bible. Let me encourage you to find some way of reading the Bible regularly. It seems that a framework or a structure helps us. So if you could get a hold of some kind of Bible reading plan or perhaps a devotional book where you know there's a, there's a reading for every day. Keller writes a lot of them and they're pretty good. Uh, the 2020discipleship.com blog. Also, it's just a framework. This is a way of walking through all of the Bible so that we can richly understand it. So step one, super obvious, make sure you're actually reading the Bible regularly. Step two, maybe you've heard of journaling. And maybe you thought, this isn't for me. Uh, that, was, that was me a few years ago. I thought, look, I'm not into scrapbooking and I'm not very good at a writer. I'm not going to do the journaling thing. Okay? But I decided I'm going to give it a try out for a month and I could tell you it's actually been a real game changer for me. It's really helped me be enriched by God's word in new ways. It's made such a difference because I'm actually wanting God to impact my life as I read his word and I want my response to his word to be concrete. If you've never tried journaling, can I suggest you give it a go for a month? I started out by buying a 29-cent exercise book from Coles. Didn't invest a lot in that one, but I gave it a crack. And it was so good. As you read the Bible, here's what you do. You slow down and you take time to actually record your thoughts, your responses to what you're reading from the text. Write down some of your questions. I even began to write down sort of prayers that I would then pray as a response to the to the text I was reading. I tried to summarise the passage just in my own words. And it's, it's amazing how just making concrete your response to what you've read stops you from doing that thing where you, know, where you, where you read the Bible and then you kind of, okay, I'm finished, I'm done, and I leave. And I have forgotten already what I just read. Actually journaling, slowing down enough to, say, you know, to write something coherent. No one else ever reads my stuff. I wouldn't dare let them do that. It's not about that. It's making concrete my response. So journaling, why don't you give it a try? It will actually enrich your engagement with the Bible. It will make your response concrete. Another suggestion for you is to meditate on the Bible. Now, meditation in Eastern philosophical traditions, it's all about emptying your mind, right? And if, you know, if nothingness is your goal, well, emptying your mind kind of seems to make sense. But instead of emptying your mind, Christian meditation means filling your mind, 
filling your mind with God's word, pondering it, mulling over it, marinating yourself in it, if you will. Have you ever watched a dog eat a bone? It's a very inefficient process. Okay? The dog sits, so he gives it a few licks, and he nudges it around with his nose, and then he picks it up and he goes somewhere else. And, then, and it could take hours for the dog to eat the bone, but they enjoy every little skerrick of that bone, and they get into the marrow. They delight in a full experience of the bone. Getting to know your Bible, meditating on the Bible, is like slowing down enough to actually uh, be changed as you read the Bible. Here's what I do when I'm reading through the Bible. And this is like step number one. Um, Kate wanted me to tell you this because this is what she does when she's meditating on the Bible. She has a very elaborate exercise book, not like my 29-cent one. And she slowly writes out the passage in her own beautiful handwriting And that process is the beginning of her meditation, of her thinking it through. Try it out. See if it works for you. What I do is I read through the passage maybe three or four times. And as I'm reading it through, I'm just looking for the chunks. Where are the chunks of this Bible? I'll sort of circle them or draw lines around them or something. And then I'm looking for, is there a word here or a phrase that really sums up this passage. That is, that's, this is the marrow in this passage. What, what is it? And I, I circle that and then I try to find the connections between things. All I'm doing is toying with it, right? I'm like the dog with the bone. I'm just trying to get the hang of this passage so that it becomes internalised, so that it becomes part of me. This isn't kind of a forensic or scientific examination of the passage. There are other ways to do that. This is allowing the text to become part of me. A really great thing to do when you think you've nearly finished meditating on the passage is to pray the passage back to God. It's a good way to do it. It puts it in your own words. So why am I doing this? It's because I want the word, God's word, I want that to shape me. I want it to form my opinions. I want it to shape my own preferences, my tastes, my choices. I want my compass to be set by God's word. And all the time, it's a relational experience. You're doing this with God. That's the third option. Here's my fourth and final suggestion that would really enrich your hearing of God's word. And it's to memorize scripture. Now, I know that memorizing anything particularly seems to have been superseded by our phone, right? Back in the day, you actually remembered phone numbers in your head. Weird, right? And people even remembered mathematical tables in their head. And they remembered timetables for the train in their head, strangely, right? But now the whole world is in my pocket. I don't have to worry about that. The problem is that I don't need God's word in my pocket I need God's word in my heart and I need God's word in my head. And that's why memorizing scripture is an absolute game changer. Not only will it train your brain in new ways if you're of a certain age, you know what I mean, right? It's going to shape your heart. There is a small group uh, that has a memory verse of the week. Uh, they, you know, at the beginning of the week, I think someone announces this is the verse we're going to memorize, and at the end of the week, they try themselves out. You could try that too. The best scripture memory system that I've ever used is called the Topical Memory System. It's run by the Navigators. You can find them on navigators.org on the web. I don't do this as regularly as I used to, 
But I want you to know, I can, I've got verses in my head that I memorised years and years and years ago and they continue to shape me. At any time, those verses are ready to come to my mind. Can I encourage you, if you've never tried memorising scripture, to actually give it a go? That's just one method of doing it. For the people who are doing the 2020 discipleship.com program with me, there's another free plug full of ads today, isn't this wonderful? You'll know that during the month of February, we're particularly working on the discipline of simplicity. How do we simplify our lives? How do we get rid of all of the stuff that sort of seems to come into our, our life randomly? We haven't chosen that as an important thing. It just comes in. How do we simplify our life? What would it look like? What does it do? If you're into simplifying your life, Scripture memory is a great way to do this. You see, you're choosing, you're prioritising scripture, and you actually write it down on a piece of cardboard is a classical way of doing it. When you're travelling to work, you turn off your phone and you pull out your little memory cards instead. When you're doing that thing where you just crash onto the couch for 10 minutes while you're waiting for something to happen, instead of pulling out your phone and flipping through things... You actually invest that 10 minutes in memorising scripture. It is a fantastic discipline. It only takes 10 minutes. 10 minute, if you are doing 10 minutes a day memorising a verse, you'll nail it easily. You'll be, you'll be doing verse upon verse. That's all it takes. Give it a try. I highly recommend it to you. The point of all that I'm trying to say is that if you build these kinds of little habits into your life, you will be changed. What we do in life is really just the summation and the accumulation of all of the little habits that we hardly ever think about. If you make a choice to build these things into your life, you will find that God's word is enriching you and changing you wonderfully. We want to hear God's word not only for information but for transformation. That's the goal. We want to be changed by God's word so that we can actually do it. This is the way that we build our houses on a solid foundation that will withstand the storms of life. It will even withstand the storms of judgment. We will be secure because we actually are doing what Jesus said, because we've actually heard his word with our ears, in our mind, and in our heart, such that it's become a part of us. It has changed us. Jesus said, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and he laid the foundation on the rock. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have spoken your words so clearly and that by the working of your spirit and your people, it's been written down. And in your kindness, you have preserved it and transmitted it to us, even us, that today we can hear your words in our own language and we can understand it. Thank you. Please may we be so formed by your word that we delight to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.